0: Good morning everybody. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Let's do this. I want to I want to just pray. Uh, and after I pray, I want us to read the passage together. I'm going to pick up right where Robert Green left off in Ecclesiastes. So we're going to start in chapter 7 verse 1 today. And I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 12 and then I'll probably just go right through all the way to at least verse 18. And then when I come back, I'm going to do something slightly different. I'm I'm not going to so much go verse by verse through verse 1 to 12. I'm going to kind of summarize it very quickly. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 13 to 18 to 20 this morning. Does that make sense? So if that's clear as mud, we'll begin. Let's pray. Lord, I I submit myself to you this morning. I, I I come before you and I ask for your help. I really believe that the words in the Bible are your own words and your own thoughts, even though you express them through people like Solomon. And I believe that every time we open this book, your purpose is to draw us to your son, Jesus. And so I ask that you would would do that this morning. For all of us who have come, that you would draw us to Jesus, even as we read a part of the Bible that doesn't contain his name. I pray for those of us who have never been convinced of our need to be forgiven by you, or the fact that even our best efforts will never be good enough to earn us a place in your eternal kingdom. I pray that today that you would convince us of those things. That you would convince us also about the fact that our best efforts are stained with sin. And that the life which Jesus lived in our place, that he, the death that he died in our place, and that these things alone, Lord, are, are good enough to satisfy you. And so I pray that we would believe that he has earned a place for us in your eternal kingdom, if we believe in him. And convince us of these things and then give us the humility that we need to confess our sin and to receive the free gift of eternal life that you hold out to us this morning. And finally, for those of us who have believed by your grace in Jesus, I just pray that you you would strengthen us so that we don't take these new hearts and these new lives that you've given us to pursue our own selfish desires, but that we would offer up a life to you that is worthy of what you deserve. Lord, we trust that As we do our best and as we trust you, you are uniting our lives and our our best efforts to to Jesus' perfect efforts. And it's because of him that you're pleased with us. I ask all these things in the name of your son. Everybody said. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house house of mirth or pleasure. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And, and the advantage of knowledge is, is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. And he has done this so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help me. Just help me to be faithful to you and to this text, so that what you meant when you inspired it is what I present to your people as I preach. And um, help, me just, help me to be helpful to them in that way and ask all these things in your name, Jesus. And again, everybody said, amen. amen. Verses 1 through 12. I'm just going to let you in on a private Bible study. This is Raymond sitting down with the Bible and with the Holy Spirit. Here's how this works for me. Because I want you, one of the things we, def, we definitely want you as Christians to do is to kind of not just passively sit and look, as, look at us as if we're magicians, kind of pulling things out of the Bible that are just impossible for anyone to do. We, we want you to be able to study the Bible for yourselves and to, and to glean what we're gleaning. So w- one of the things that I do is I sit down and I say, God, how is all of this connected? As I'm praying, I'm saying, Lord, help me to understand what you meant when you spoke through the original author of this passage. And then I, I pray and, and, and God begins to speak to me as, my, as I read the Bible. And so I, I say, God, how is all this connected? It's, it's kind of proverbial. There's this saying and there's that saying and the wise is this and the bribe does this and how does all this fit together? And, and what I try to do is find a unifying theme for a particular section of the Bible. And in verses 1 to 12, look carefully with me at verse 8, if we can find verse 8. Solomon says here, better is the, the end of a thing than its beginning." Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And what you'll find is that in verses 1 to 12, it's easy to tell it sometimes, and it's difficult to tell it others. This, this main theme kind of runs, runs throughout. Now, let me show you how that works. Look at the first verse, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. You might look at that at first and say, well, what does one have to do with the other? Why does he say a good name is better than precious ointment, and then the day of death than the day of birth? A couple of things that you'd, you'd want to know. First of all, in Hebrew, and this is where, I, now I don't know Hebrew, and I don't know Greek. I have this thing called Logos Bible Software. And I, I look this stuff up, and all the people who are really smart, who know all this stuff, they put this stuff together, and I just use what they put together. So the good news is that you can do this too. It's very good news. A good name, and by the way, this is good to check your pastors. Check your pastors. Find out if what they're saying is really true. Right In Acts 17, 11, Paul says that the Bereans were of a more noble heart than even the Thessalonians because they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So go back and examine the Scriptures to see if what we say is true. And don't believe anything unless you can find it in the Bible. Is that fair? All right, because we're not here to put our opinions on you. We're here as messengers of God. So if we don't speak his words, you're, you're under no obligation to listen. A good name is better than the precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. In the Hebrew, the word name and the word for precious ointment are very similar in sound. So there's something poetic. There's a play on words. It would literally read for them, a good Shem is better than Shemen. So there's a poetic kind of play on words going here. So that determines, you know, if you're writing poetry, your desire to make something rhyme kind of, of, it it, it makes an impact on what word you choose. Well, that's what's going on here. So a good Shem is better than Shemen, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now watch how those two are related. When do you receive your name? Day of birth, for some of us slightly after. But receiving your name is associated with the day of birth. What Solomon is saying is that a good name, really a good reputation, is more important. He's talking about the name that you leave behind at the day of death. Do you see that? Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. He does this all the way through. In fact, he he goes on and he talks about it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And he tells us why. For this is the end of all mankind. Again, as an instructor of the meaning and purpose of life, better is the end of a thing than the... the... You're getting the theme. Right? Now, he's, he's not so much saying that, oh, just never have fun in life. He'll, he'll talk about this later. By the time we get to verse 14, he'll say, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. So he's not saying, don't be joyful. What he's saying is there's a lot that we can learn from the house of mourning and from things that are, that are falling into the bucket of adversity. Let me, I'll read you this poem. There's a guy by the name of Robert Browning Hamilton who said this, kind of summarizing what Solomon says here in verses 2 to 4. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. You know, I'm, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting to find one person who will look at me Look me right right in the eyes and say, you know what? You know when I learned the most about life? You know when I grew the most as a person and as a Christian? When everything was going the way that I wanted it to. Have any of you ever heard that testimony? This is the way it tends to work. Most of our periods of great growth in the faith tend to be connected to the hardships that we face, the adversity, and how we persevere through trial. I'm not saying there's nothing we can learn when times are good. I'm not even telling you that I'm going to leave here trying to look for adversity and and hard times. I'm not. But when they come, I'm hoping they become occasions for growth. Can you say amen? All right, so you see this in the better is the end of a thing than the beginning. He kind of continues this all the way through, even when it comes to matters of inheritance down in, in verse 10. Forgive me. Verse 10 is an obvious one, but in verse 11 and 12, you see where he says here, wisdom is good with an inheritance. You know, if you get something, you get an inheritance, and that's the beginning, you don't have wisdom with it, it's going to be gone pretty soon. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. The the issue is not how much you've inherited, but the wisdom that God has given you and how you use that wisdom to steward the inheritance, because it's what's left, and it's what you leave behind and pass on. So again, everybody, better is the end of a thing than the... Verses one to twelve, and you can go back and study those things in further detail. And now let's go on um, into verse thirteen and on down. And this is where I want to spend most of our time today. I was thinking about this, and <clears throat> I realized every year Heather and I, we go up to Philadelphia for Christmas. We actually go to Maryland to see my parents, and up to Philadelphia to spend some time with her parents and her her side of the family. And so Heather, Chris, and Holly will come, and Heather's sister Heidi and Brother Michael and all the husbands and wives that are connected and all the kids. And we'll go up and we'll raid Les and Connie's house. And they're here this morning. But we'll go in there and we'll take over the house. And we've got this little ritual at Christmas time. At, at one night while we're there, there's, there's this moment where the kids are all down in bed. And it's time for the adults to play some games. And so we'll, we'll play like a little board game or something. And one, one year, I think it was last year, we were playing this one game. And it, it was, I can't remember the name, but it was, you ask a question and everyone has to answer the question. And then the, the point of the game is to try to figure out which person goes with which answer. Have you all ever played a game like that? Okay, well, we played it. And, and the question, I, I remember one question was something like this. If you, if you could have a remote control for anything in the world, what would it be? A remote control for anything in the world, what would it be? I think one of us said traffic. Anybody wish traffic? Right? There would be a new button on the remote control, like red C button. Um, Nobody but me getting through, you know? See you. One of us said traffic. Heather and I, without batting an eyelash. This was the quickest answer. I I take long to answer these questions. We both said our kids. I mean, without, without even... No hesitation. We just said our kids, and, and everyone thought that was funny. The funniest one, though, was the person that put Raymond and Heather's kids. I don't know. Is that the... <laughs> that was, no, nobody put that, but that would have been funny. Anyway, think, think about this. If you could have a remote control for anything, really think about it. What would it be? And see, These are the kind of questions that games ask us, but while games ask us one set of questions, real life tends to ask us another set, doesn't it? All right, so I'm going to ask us a real life question here. How should you and I live in a world that we can't control? How should we live in a world that we can't control? That's what Solomon's going to explain to us here in verses 13 to 18. He's going to go through these things and take us step by step through these. And what I want to do with the rest of our time then is to point out three things that we learn about life in God's world that we need to remember at all times. And then I want to look at some of the ways that we respond to these things and these truths. Right? And Solomon will mention a couple of things, a couple of ways that we should not respond, and then one way that we should. Okay? So three things we learn about God's world, two ways that we shouldn't respond, one way that we should. All right? Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? First thing that you and I need to know and remember about life in God's world is that in God's world, there are some things that we simply cannot change. In God's world, there are some things that we simply cannot change. Notice what Solomon says here. He wants us to think, and he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Nobody. Certainly not any of us, at least. We'll revisit this question if I remember at the end. But who can make straight what God has made crooked? What Solomon is trying to do here is he is trying to show us that this is simply, it's a reminder, this is God's world and not ours. Right? And, and even despite our best efforts, there are some things that you and I don't have the ability or the strength to fix. We can't just take our desires and our, our desire for the, the world that we want. and We can't just, we can't just overpower God and, and change the world according to our own desires. We can't straighten out what he has made crooked. If, he, if, if that's the way he wants it, if that's really the way he wants it, then even if we think it should be different, try your best. Knock yourself out. It will not be straightened. In God's world, there are some things that you and I simply cannot change. And the next thing that we need to remember about life in God's world is going to help us see what one of those things is. We're going to have to remember not only that there are some things in God's world that we simply cannot change, but number two, life in God's world is unpredictable. Let's look at verse 14. Solomon says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this, that God has made the one as well as the other. I want everybody to see this. God does not make only the day of prosperity. I want you to see this. There's a very popular teaching and idea out there that God only makes the day of prosperity and someone else is the one making the day of diversity. I want to be very clear here when I say that the Bible does not teach that. And, I, and I'm hoping you'll be able to agree with me because this is why we open our Bibles and read them together. Look again. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider what? This is, this is the way God wants us to think when adversity comes. He wants us to consider... That he made it. He made the day when we encounter this. He made it. He ordained this time. He wants us to consider that God has made the one as well as the other. Now, why has God ordained that in this life, we would experience a mixture of prosperity and adversity? Part of me wants to give you my own answer. Part of me understands my job is to give you God's answer. So, here's what we will do. In the day of adversity or in prosperity, be joyful, which is a command, by the way, if you're, you're experiencing a day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that, here's why God did it, so that man might not find out anything that will be after him. The NIV helps us here with its translation. It says, so that man might not know anything about his future. Life in God's world, number two, is unpredictable. Why? Because that's how God made it. When Solomon says that God has made things crooked, that you and I might be tempted to feel like we should straighten out, he's talking primarily here about the fact that God has ordained that life would be filled with a mix of What we would consider good and bad. Prosperity, adversity. There's a mixture that God has put in the world for his own purposes. And so he's done it so that you and I don't know what tomorrow holds for us. And he's got good reasons for doing this. The crooked thing hit me this morning as as I was coming back from Williamsburg. We were on a stretch of 64 West coming back in. And it was as straight as you could possibly make it. And I realized that this road was so straight that you could see really far ahead of you. I think what Solomon is trying to tell us here is that the road of life as God has made it is not like that. It's, it's crooked. Not that God has done something bad, but the road has not just stretches of prosperity, but turns of adversity as well. And the effect of a, a road with all these turns in it, who goes to U of R? So you guys know boat right. When you think about this, you think about boat right. When you're going down snake road, as they call it, it you, you can't see an inch in front of you, right? You don't know what's coming around that corner. And so you take your time and you, you're cautious as you proceed. This is how life is with God. It's, 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 it's foolish and very presumptuous to think we know exactly what's coming down the road. And to live our life now as if that's the case. Life has turns of adversity and so God has done that so that we'll always be dependent upon him. So that we'll never think, ah, I've got it all figured out and I don't need to hear from God. When you and I cut ourselves off from the voice of God as our navigator, we're in big trouble. And so he has set life up with a mixture of things that keep us dependent upon his voice. So not only do we we have to remember that there are some things in God's world that we simply cannot change, we also have to remember that life in God's world is unpredictable, and I I was going to say something about God making the day of adversity. That <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I should say. What time is it? Oh, we do have time. I understand how difficult that is. I understand how difficult that is for a lot of people. You, if you come to the Bible with a concept of God that he only, um, he only brings the, the things that we think are good, then, then passages like that in the Bible will trouble you. You'll you'll find other ones, like in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 to 7. It won't be on the screen, but but God says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. In Amos chapter 3, you'll read where God says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? There are some some things in the Bible that, you know what they do? You know what they should do? They make you consider whether or not your current understanding of God is accurate. And they force you to make a decision. Will I leave the Bible fighting to maintain my current understanding of who God is? Or will I humble myself before the Bible and what it says about God and allow my thoughts about God to be reshaped so that they line up with what He says in the Bible? It's It's a crisis of belief. And you're forced to consider these things. And it's good. It's good for you to go to these places and these points in the Bible that make you rethink what you believe about God. You you come out of it with a... Usually, if it's it's done right, you come out of it with a better and more accurate understanding of who God is. And you get to question your own concept of what is good. Right? Why should you hold so tightly onto your own concept of what is good and refuse to let that change... Instead of allowing yourself to hold that with an open hand, I, I, we're so quick to say, well, God has done something bad. No, what, what if our idea of what is good is flawed and not what God has done? Do you see what I'm saying? So maybe we ought, we ought to reconsider that. Anyway, that's all I'll say. Um, so we have to remember there are some things we can't change. Life in God's world is unpredictable by design. And number three, people don't always get what they seem to deserve. This is a really hard one for us. Because we live by formulas. If I do this, then I can know that this will happen. And and Solomon's about to tell us some some things that cause us to revisit that idea as well. In verse 15, he says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. You ever had had something happen to you and you say, Oh, now I've seen it all. You, You said, this is kind of what Solomon is saying. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness... And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Crooked, right? Don't you want to straighten that out? What does the righteous man deserve? He deserves that longer life, right? The long, happy life. What does the wicked man deserve? He should die, right? He should die early. Come on, you can say it. He ought to get what he deserves, right? Part of us, that judicial sentiment, that, that desire for justice... That we want to fall on everyone but us. That it says, he, should, he ought to pay for that. Hang him. Or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is you think. that Justice. The cry of justice. And, and we're thinking, this is crooked. God, this needs to be straightened out. And Solomon is just trying to point out, it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always work that way. I, I was thinking about this. And I was thinking, think about how many times you can consider seeing this happen. I mean, don't you... Don't you see sometimes, it's like you look at that person at work and they're doing everything right. They're not like one of those overly ambitious people ready to step on everyone else's heads to climb the ladder. They're not lying and and cheating and, you you know what I mean, they're not just brown nosing and and trying to make everybody else look bad at the same time. But here it is, that person is doing all the right things and then yet that time comes for someone's going to get the promotion and that person is just overlooked and who gets the promotion? brown nose, step on everybody, climb the ladder, right? And you just say, well, how did that happen? That's crooked, right? That shouldn't be. It's the businessman who's completely unethical, and he seems to be prospering his business. And you're thinking, what in the world? Yet this guy doing it right, making sure he does everything, I mean, bringing up to his tax people things that he's like, I don't think that's right. I I owe more in taxes. And he's he's tracking down the government to pay taxes. And then his his business goes under in a hard time in the economy. Isn't that crooked? But does that happen? It does. It does. Which is why you, you can't go through life with this idea of God's promises that if you simply do A, B, and C right, That it's going to guarantee you a particular result. There are very few guarantees like that. One of them is that if you trust in Jesus, God will forgive and accept you. You can bank on that. There are very few promises that trustworthy. Everything that God has spoken as a promise in the Bible, you can bank on. You can hang your life on. But here's what I've here's what I've experienced. We often misunderstand those promises. We often read into those things, things that God has promised us that really when you check out the whole Bible and put it all together, you find that God really didn't promise that to you at least as an individual. Maybe it was a promise he made to someone 4,000 years ago and it was for them at that time and maybe it's already been fulfilled and this happens with Bible promises that when God's speaking to Abraham, he's really speaking to Abraham. And some of those promises spoken to Abraham having to do with the land that they would get as a nation, it's been done. You can't take that and say, God's given me a plot of land in Richmond. No, you have, you have to work, you have to earn, you have to purchase, you got to do all that. You, know, right? you can't just walk and everywhere I put my foot, God's going to, it doesn't work that way. I mean, try that. There are fences. Go try that. Just try that. The Lord said everywhere I put my foot, I'm going to take your house and, you know, it doesn't work that way. It just, you, you know what I'm saying, that's, not, that's a misunderstanding of God's promises, right? And so, and I've, I probably shouldn't even make light of things like that. There, there are a lot of people who believe this, and it, it sets us up for great downfalls. Anyway, Solomon gives us these three things that we need to consider. Number one, there are some things in God's world we just cannot change. Number two, life in God's world is unpredictable by design. And number three, people don't always get what they seem to deserve. And when we understand these things, we begin to say, all right, what does that mean for what I do? How do I live if this is true? And Solomon's going to give us two ways that we tend to respond that he doesn't think are very good, and one way that we should respond. You get this sense of, think about what I just told you, what the Bible just told you. There's some things you can't change. Life's really unpredictable and you can't do anything about it. You're not always going to get what you think you deserve. You're thinking, I don't have very much control over what happens to me, right? You feel vulnerable? You feel small? Sometimes that's what happens when you come into the presence of the God that the Bible gives us. Right? Now, here's what people do. You and I as sinful people, here's how we respond. Well, if I can't count on The future that I've imagined for myself really coming to pass, if there's no real guarantee for that based on certain things, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So if this it's possible that this righteous man doing these good things ends this way and this wicked man ends the way I thought the righteous man would, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, right? And here's how I'm going to control what happens to me. Look at what Solomon says. In verse 16, he begins to talk about these responses we have. In verse 16, we hear these things and, we, and he, he says, I know what you're thinking and here's what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to be overly righteous. And here's what he says in verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? What, what does Solomon mean? Is he saying, do five good things, but not six or seven? That's overly righteous. Righteous. Obey your parents, kids, three times, but not four. Be on time for work five times, but not six. No, that that can't be what he means, right? Neither can he mean, do not be perfectly righteous. Because that would put Jesus in a bad place. So we need to find out what Solomon means when he says, don't be overly righteous. All right? So let's keep reading, and then I'll revisit it, and I'll tell you what I think he means. Verse 16, do not be overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Here's the second way we tend to respond. Well, if I can't guarantee anything for myself by being good, I'm just not going to be good. All those things that I really want to do because that's where my heart is, all those things I really love and that I want to go after, but that God says I shouldn't go after, And since I'm afraid of God and I don't want to be punished, I don't go after them, but I really don't love God and my reason for obeying Him is not that I love Him and that I I trust Him and I believe what He says. I'm just afraid He'll punish me. But if, if I can be punished anyway, well, let's just live it up right now, right? What's the difference? I'm going to take matters into my own hands and control what happens to me right now cuz there's no guarantee for afterward. This is all I can control. And so if you're if you're a polished, well-studied Christian, here's how that looks for us. We just kind of going the right way, going the right way, going the right way, take the grace of God as a license to sin. We know he'll forgive us. Come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. He'll forgive us. Come back, come back, come back, come back. He'll forgive us again. And we abuse the grace of God, right? If you're not a Christian or you're not into that religious thing, then maybe you just just don't bother with that religious or morality stuff at all and you're just overly wicked and you just go. Solomon sets these two things up. Being overly righteous, that is depending on your good things and the good things you do, to earn and secure for you a particular result that you think you deserve. And being overly wicked, that is taking matters into your own hands and saying, if I can't guarantee what's happening to me in the future, I'm just going to go and do anything that I want anyway. However that looks for you, religious or not, Solomon takes those two extremes and he says this, verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Or in the NIV, the one who truly fears God will avoid all extremes. Now Solomon says here, take hold of this and from that don't withhold your hand. Is Solomon saying, be righteous and wicked at the same time? No. When he says, take hold of this and that, that's not what he's talking about. He's just just using general terms here to say, avoid all extremes. Don't find yourself all the way over here thinking, if I just follow this formula, I'll be able to secure this result. And don't find yourself over here saying, well... What's the point of listening to God anyway? I can't secure anything. Those are two extremes. And Solomon says, opposite of these two extremes, or in between them, if you would, apart from them, is this other way of life that he does recommend. Not being overly wicked or overly righteous, but fearing God. Fearing God. Notice what he says, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that not withhold your hand. For the one who fears God will avoid all extremes, or will come out from both of them. So here's what we know so far about what it means to fear God. We would tend to think that just means being afraid of Him. We know that it is something God loves, that we would fear before Him, that we would... One of the best ways to think of this, there's no exact definition given in the Bible, but Isaiah chapter 66, and this won't be on your screen, so listen, I'll try to find it and read it for you. In Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Or this is the one for whom I will have regard. Here's what God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is, this is what Isaiah has in mind when he speaks about those who fear the Lord. That's what it means, you're humble, you're contrite in spirit, meaning you, you don't approach God with hubris or with arrogance thinking you deserve anything, with a sense of entitlement. You, you approach him understanding that that's just not the way this works. And so you're also contrite. When you sin, you're, you're affected deeply by that, not just because you got caught and there's some negative consequence, but because you've, you've gone against God and you love him more than anything and anyone in the world and you tremble at his word and this is this is this is here's here's how you should you should probably think of that when god speaks it moves you it moves you you're not unaffected you tremble it, god's voice comes and your whole life moves it, the earth trembles when an earthquake comes when When plates underneath the surface collide, the earth trembles. Why? Because of what it is. Something happened and because of what the earth is, it trembles. Because of where it stands in relationship to those plates, it trembles. Look, when God speaks, because of where you stand in relationship to Him, and because of who you are, you will either tremble or not tremble. It's about where you are in relationship with God and, and what you are because of his grace. Has he changed your heart to the point where when he speaks, it moves your entire life? This is, this is what it means to fear God. And, and so let me give us some help. This is, let's see if we can locate ourselves. Where are we? What is most characteristic of us? Is it the over-righteous thing? Is it the overly wicked thing? Or is it fearing God? We all want to say it's the third one. Most of us. Some of you may not want anything to do with religion or God or that sort of thing. And um, and so maybe you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm not on the over-wicked side. I wouldn't put myself there. But but you might be doing the over-righteous thing. Here's how you can know if you're relating to God primarily with this over-righteous thing. Um, you'll, you'll have a deep sense of entitlement. If you have lived in such a way... and. If you have done your good deeds simply to secure a particular result for yourself, then here's what will happen. Whenever anything happens in life to disappoint you, when that result you were hoping for does not come to pass, when prosperity does not come but adversity instead, and you thought that by the kind of life you were living you would be able to avoid that and be exempt from it, you get very upset with God. You get very upset with God. And I'm not just talking about the feeling that comes when you're disappointed, that you're upset, you're shocked, you're you're disappointed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the prolonged thing where not only do you have this feeling of, oh, God, how could you let this happen to me or "What, what went wrong? You actually feel justified in that feeling. Do you know what I'm talking about? You actually feel like you have the right to question how God has run the world and how he has run your life. And you say, God, you should never have let that happen to me. And if I were to ask you why God should never have let that happen to you, your answer would have been, because I was good. And in your heart, you believe that because you were good, you deserved something different and better. You are entitled to something from God that he did not give you. And therefore, you feel justified being angry with him. And there are lots of people out there who will tell you that this is okay. Okay. I just listened to a sermon three weeks ago from one of them. There are lots of people who will tell you that God understands that and he's okay with it. My understanding of the Bible from everything I read is that God does not respond kindly to people who who relate to him this way. He responds with understanding, patience, and mercy. And he comes and approaches us. But he always approaches people in the Bible who do this. and, And he says, wait a minute, let's get this straight. Job, now think about what Job went through. And God comes to Job and says, Who is this who darkens my words or my counsel with words without wisdom? Job, I have been unfair to you. I didn't give you what you were entitled to. Which one of us is God? I mean, where is the obligation here? I mean, I I think people just don't want to hurt our feelings. I think they understand that. I think people are afraid to tell us the truth. They don't want us to te- they, nobody wants to hear that God has the right to, to allow hard things to come into our life and, and we're not entitled to anything from Him. Did you know that? I'll prove it to you. If you have a Bible, follow me Romans chapter 11, the very end of Romans chapter 11. Don't lose your place in Ecclesiastes. I want to I want to show you what Paul says here, and this is only one such place. There are many. At the end of Romans chapter eleven, as Paul considers the wonders of God and the way He has done things, the way He has acted as God and what that has done to the world and to us, he says in verse, or rather in verse thirty-three, "O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God." How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Watch this. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. Remember Isaiah? All these things My hand has made, what will you give Me? To Him be the glory forever. Amen. God is, listen, look at verse 35, if you have your Bible open to Romans, chapter 11, verse 35. Paul says, quoting the the scriptures here, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? In other words, does God owe you something? Such that he would have to repay you? Have you given something to God? In all your goodness, have you given something to God that places him in your debt? The Bible's answer is no. Our answer is often yes. God owes me a good, long, and happy life. God owes me the family that I want. God owes me the job that I want. God owes me the kids that I want. God owes me the the friends that I want. God owes me the church that I want. God owes me the heaven that I want. Our answer is often yes. Yes. The Bible's answer, everyone look at me, is no. God does not owe us anything. Which is a great thing to know. When you understand that, you are less prone to be disappointed by God. Things between you and God can be okay. One of the things that ruins relationships quicker than anything is faulty expectations. Have you noticed that? Anybody in here with someone else? You spend a lot of time with that person, whether in marriage or whatever, If you don't know what to expect of that person, they're gonna constantly, or if they don't know what you expect of them, they're always gonna be disappointed, disappointing you. And God is always disappointing some of us, not because he's a bad God, but because we expect things that he hasn't promised. And, And watch, our relationship with God would be fixed to a large degree almost right away if our expectations would line up with what the Bible teaches. I promise you. It's a good promise, you can you can take it. So read the Bible, get to know God, all right? So I forget where I was. Oh yeah, how can you know that we're, we're relating to God in this over-righteous kind of way? There's that sense of entitlement that you feel where you often get upset with God if what you want or what you expected didn't come to pass. But there's another way that you can tell you're relating to God on this over-righteous kind of path. And this is the way that I find in myself more than anything. You're not really grateful as grateful as you should be for the good things that come into your life. Right? You just kind of expect them. Do you know what I mean? You just get used to them. You kind of feel like you deserve them. Because you've been good, right? You've obeyed God. So you, you won't notice this one as quickly. This is the one that gets Christians and religious people all the time. You just kind of have come to expect good things because of your good decisions and you're not as grateful as you should be. Just as evil and wicked as the person that's getting upset with God all the time. And that's the one, again, that hits my home. That's 4933 Cavan Green Court more than anything else. Is I've been convicted this week that I'm not as grateful to God as I should be for some of the good things that he's brought into my life. Lord, I just take a moment to pray at this, at this point that wherever we find ourselves there, that you would help us by your word to have those things change in our hearts. Everybody said, amen. What about the over-wicked thing? How do you know if you're relating to God that way? You're just being overly wicked. Well, there's, a, there's an easy way to tell, I suppose. You just, you're just taking things that you know are wrong and things that you know are sinful, and you're going after them anyway and and you're you're almost just doing it because you you really think it doesn't matter what I do because I can't. if I can't manipulate God and control him to give me what I want, then I'm just going to control what I can, and I'm just going to live life the way that I want to, no matter what he says. So if you're relating to God that way, then you're on the over-wicked path that Solomon's describing, and you too would need to repent just like the rest of us. And then what he says is this fearing God thing. Now, how do you know when you're on that path? You're fearing God. That that even if you slip occasionally into one or the others, that this is most characteristic of you? If you kept reading in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 7 down to verse 20, you would run across this verse which says this. Chapter 7 verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man or woman on earth who does what is good And never sins. When you're living a life that would fall into what the Bible describes as fearing God. Instead of feeling this great sense of entitlement. Or instead of just willfully running away from God and doing everything you know that is wrong. You've got this deep sense that verse 20 is true about you. That that it's even as good as you might be on your best day, it's never true about you that you do what is good and never sin. And you begin to agree, again, God's word causes you to move and tremble. It causes you to, to say, yes, God, what you say is true. And your life is now built on the truth that God has spoken to you. So you not only understand this about yourself, that you... You're never perfect in that there is, there is sin in your life. You begin to own and accept that. But then you also begin to own and accept the other things that the Bible says about sinful people like you and me. Who find that within themselves there is sin. And, and this will not be on your screen, but I want you to listen. In Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'll skip that and go to chapter 6, verse 23. Listen, I want you to listen to what God says. We often think that we deserve certain good things from God, but I'm going to show you what the Bible says we deserve as people who have sin in our lives, who have sinned against God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death. It's called wages because it's what you've earned. It's what you deserve. Wages are what you give someone. That's what they deserve for their work. The work of sin that we have done in our lives causes us to earn or deserve death from God. Not just we put you in the ground, but complete separation forever from God. Spiritual as well as natural death. The wages of sin is death, but... Verse 23, the rest of the verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God, in the same breath, as he speaks about what we actually deserve before him, death, hell, separation from God forever, he also says that there's something that you don't deserve, but it's something that I I will give you as a gift in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is something we call eternal life. Where, despite the reality of our sins, God chooses in his mercy and kindness to forgive those sins, to fully pardon all of our sins. It's a gift. No one earns or deserves this. And God graciously offers us this gift in, the Bible says, Christ Jesus our Lord, which is very closely connected to what we're reading in Ecclesiastes, because over in chapter 7, verse 20 of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to say something that I rarely ever say about the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 is no longer true. It is no longer true. There is one who has been perfectly good and never sinned. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. Jesus was perfectly good and never sinned. And the fact that Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20 is no longer true has changed everything about the world as we know it and can change everything about our life as we know it. Those who believe not only that Jesus was perfectly good and never sinned, but those who believe that when He offered up His perfect life on the cross as payment for their sins, who actually trust, fear God by trusting God to take care of them and their future instead of taking control of things themselves, who actually say that if I'm going to receive the good life, the eternal life even that God has promised me, if I am going to receive this gift from God, it will not be because I have earned it by stacking one good deed on top of another. It will be because Jesus has done something that makes God willing to pardon all of my sins. He has received something from Jesus that He has not received from me, will never receive from me, and what He has received from Jesus perfectly satisfies him. Do you know what God demands from us? Perfect righteousness. See, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. In the Sermon on the Mount, you can look at this this later, he goes through and says, I'm not here to take the law of God away from you, but I'm here to fulfill it. And then he actually says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Scribes and the Pharisees, the people who know everything about the Bible and do it better than everyone else, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do you come to possess this righteousness that exceeds what they have because of what they do and what they know? It's through faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 3, 22 tells us this righteousness comes. This righteousness is by faith. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the free gift of redemption and eternal life that God holds out to us. You know what Jesus did? We we know the story. Jesus offers his life on the cross. God accepts his death as payment for our sin. God shows that he accepts that payment by raising Jesus from the dead, which Acts 17 is also the proof that he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He gave proof to all men, the Bible says, by raising him from the dead. Listen, God has shown that he has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of us who have sinned. I thought about it and I said, how can I explain this? I have three brothers. I remember distinctly. I don't remember the exact lie because we told many. And... Whenever we did something really bad, we were playing soccer in the house and we weren't supposed to, and we broke something my three brothers and I it was amazing how quickly we could, you could get us all to work together. And we, we began to manufacture this story that would convince my, my father, who, of course, had, would have no clue that we were lying. We were very wise in our own eyes, right? So we manufactured this story, and my dad lines all four of us up: Who broke my vase? One of the things we broke. Dad, we don't know. It must have been when uh, our friends were over at some point. My dad kind of caught on that we weren't telling the truth. We looked kind of funny. He just lined all four of us up and asked us again, what happened? I I want the truth. He was demanding something from all four of us. He was demanding the truth, right, from all four of us. One crossed the picket line, my oldest brother, Rohan. And he looked at my dad and said, Dad, we were playing soccer in the house again. And we, we, broke, we broke the vase. Raymond did it. <laughs> I missed. Something happened in that moment. One was, I kind of looked over like this. The other was this. My dad changed. My father changed at that moment. I want to tell you why. He had received from one what he demanded from all. He had received from one what he demanded from all. And it satisfied him. His thirst for truth was satisfied. If I were to come up after my brother or Robert or Ronald were to come up after Rohan and try to say, oh yeah, that's what happened, that's what happened, and try to repeat that act. Listen, satisfied people have no more room for a repeat of what just satisfied them. Are Are you hearing me? There was no more room in my father's heart for my effort to repeat what my older brother did. That slot had been taken. He was satisfied. The only thing he was requiring of the other three of us now was for us to be joined to that offering of truth that my oldest brother presented. He was saying, you guys now have to repent and acknowledge that you were sinful, that you were guilty, that you deserve punishment, but you have to be joined to what your older brother did, and and you have to agree and say, yes, that that is what you deserve, Father. And we willingly accept from your hand whatever we deserve. But we know you, Dad. We know that all you wanted was the truth. And we know also that you're merciful. Having received what you demanded from all, from the one, we know that you will pardon us. There is no room for us to add our good deeds to what Jesus has done. There is only room to be joined to what Jesus has done by believing Why? Because God, our Father, is satisfied with what Jesus has offered him. How do you and I become joined to what Jesus has done? You believe. You hear something like this about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and you say, yes, that is true. And God knows how to join you to Jesus. You say, Lord, I receive from your hand whatever I deserve. And what you will find is a merciful Father in heaven who says, I now see a humble, contrite spirit who trembles at my word, particularly what I have spoken about my son Jesus. And God will say, my son, my daughter, I forgive your sins. Come, welcome are those who humble themselves before the Lord. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can tell me to depart. Hear this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is Satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Father, I pray that <clears throat> we would understand this in a, in a new and greater way. That you you will never be satisfied with even our best efforts because they're stained with sin. But you do accept from us our best efforts when they are done with the knowledge that what you really accept is Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And that because you are satisfied and pleased with Him, you will look upon Him and pardon us. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Lord, we pray that you would seal these truths in our hearts. And I pray that right now, if there's anyone sitting in here who has yet to respond to this truth about Jesus in a way that you would say, trembles at your word. Anyone who has yet to receive the free gift of eternal life, that today would be the day. We ask all these things in the name of your precious Son, who shed his blood on the cross for our sins, and everybody said, Amen. Amen.